weeks ago, you will know that we, we talked about how Peter uh, encountered Jesus. And Peter was busy fishing, and um, Jesus, well, they were cleaning their nets, and Jesus came up and wanting to choose a boat to be able to talk to the people better, chose Peter's boat. And we learned how Jesus, throughout history, throughout eternity, has been making choices to step into your boat. And that makes you significant, and it gives you a message. And it is, it means that from that place, you begin to proclaim and work with him to bring about his kingdom in your environment. And the series is really about us coming to see Jesus in greater clarity, to know who he is in, with greater um, surety and confidence in our hearts. And the series is through Peter's eyes. we kind of looking at how he encountered Jesus and how he came to know him in greater and greater measure and how he came to that confident place of being used by, by him to start the church and to build God's kingdom. So Lord, as we begin this, I just want to pray that your, your heart for us, your heart for this nation, your heart for our families, your heart for our communities would become real, front and central, Lord God. We would see you as you really are, Lord God. We would, we would be able to step out, Lord God, from from anything that is less than what you have for us, Lord, that, that who you are would be our main priority and would fill our vision, Lord God. Lord God, that our hearts would be filled with the security and the comfort and the joy that comes from knowing you, Lord. And in every way, we would be completely us, the people you meant us to be, filled with you and moving towards the culmination of all of history, and that is the world serving you, Lord Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. So when I'm thinking about eyewitness news, I, I, got, to, I got to thinking about this man who one day went to look for a parking place in Johannesburg at one of the shopping centers and wasn't able to find it. So having a four by four, he kind of pulled his way up onto one of the pavements and kind of snuggled his way between two cars and got a parking ticket for parking in the wrong place. And he felt like, no, he didn't really want to pay this fine. So he uh, went to court and he's standing in front of the judge, and the judge is saying, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, well, you know what? Um, I actually have eyewitnesses to prove this, but when I was there, there was no parking, and this policeman said to me, you may park here. So I just parked where the policeman said I could park. So the judge turns to him and says, well... How about you and your eyewitnesses just pay the fine? Oh, no, sorry, sorry. The, ugh, I nearly gave my joke away. The, the, police, the, the judge says to him, this policeman who told you where you could park, do you think you could recognize him again? He says, sure, sure, I know. Now he's getting hope in his heart. And then he says, and your eyewitnesses, do you think they could recognize him again? Sure, sure, we could recognize him again. So he says, okay, well, how about this? You go and pay the fine, and then you and the eyewitnesses, you go and find that policeman and tell him he owes you 250 rand. <laughs> so that's, I don't know what that's got to do with a sermon on eyewitness news, but nonetheless, God is a happy God, so I thought we'd start on a happy note. We are going to be spending time looking at 
The great question from Matthew 16, you didn't even know there was a great question, did you? Well, there is a great commission, and the great commission is in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is a great commandment, did you know that? The great commandment goes like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Two powerful, powerful scriptures that we can base our life on, but there is also the great question. What is it? <laughs> Funny you should ask. But if you will turn with me to Matthew 16, 13 to 19, let's look at the great question. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say, say Elijah, and some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on hev in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Spectacular. This is Jesus. The first time he word used the word church, believe it or not. And he's talking about this great declaration that comes out of Peter's mouth as to who Jesus is. And he's saying on this declaration, not on Peter himself, but on this declaration that Peter has made about who Jesus is. Jesus is saying on this truth. I will build a church. I will build a community of people who've been called out of the world and called to me. And I will build a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, I will build a winning, glorious church that will push back the... Um, the darkness that will rescue the oppressed, that will bring people out of bondage, that will establish the goodness and grace of God on earth. I will build this powerful entity that is unstoppable. And what's more, I will give the church keys. I will give the church keys that will unlock my kingdom on earth. The way the, the original is written is not so well said in English, but it literally means what has been unbound in heaven, you will unbound on earth. On earth. And what has been bound in heaven, you will bind on earth. What is it saying? It's saying that the church will look into the victory that Jesus was won, will look into heaven and see how God meant it to be, and we will say, as it is in heaven, so it is on earth. And we will say, no, that doesn't look like heaven. You may not do that. We will look into the situation and say, that is how heaven is meant to be. Receive the love and life and blessing of Jesus. We will pull from our, from our Savior the truth and the victory that he would won and we will release it on earth the glorious church in one moment Jesus introduced his plan for the world so the story the great question that this revelation all began on 
was the question of who do you say I am? What is interesting for me is that Jesus didn't say, who do you think I am? He said, who do you say I am? He started initially with the crowds and he said to his disciples, tell me, who do all those crowds out there say I am? You know, when Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information. Do you understand that? He knows it all. He's looking to hear what they understand. And the funny thing is that the crowds apparently were saying things about Jesus like, like he's Jeremiah and he's Elijah, which were two powerful prophets. They were also saying, oh, he's John the Baptist, which is very confusing to me because John the Baptist and Jesus were often seen together. So how they could think Jesus was John the Baptist is a bit strange, but nonetheless, we will just pass right over that and give them the benefit of the doubt. But they're saying, Jesus is Jeremiah and Elijah were like two of the greatest prophets in Israel. So they, they weren't saying bad things about Jesus. They were saying, oh my gosh, Jesus is powerful. He's awesome. He's like one of the prophets of old. Yeah. And yet Jesus was so much more than that. And they were giving it their best shot and yet still ah, hitting far too low. So Jesus makes it a little bit more personal. And he turns to his disciples and he says, well, okay, that's who they say I am. But who do you say I am? As I said earlier, he, he didn't say to them, who do you think I am? Who do you feel in your heart when you're lying in bed and you're contemplating me? What comes to mind? He's not saying all these things. He's saying, who do you say I am? In other words, when you're sitting around the, the fishing boats or in the taverns, I don't know if they had taverns, but wherever the people congregated in those times, and people are start talking about, well, Jesus is powerful like Jeremiah. People, Jesus is just like John the Baptist resurrected. He says, well, who do you say I am? What do you respond when people say perhaps good things about Jesus, but not the right thing? And he's saying, what is the declaration that comes out of your mouth? Who do you say I am? When you're sitting around with your family and they're talking about how, um, oh, this, you know, there's problems in the family and this is happening and that's happening and it's all falling apart. Who do you say I am? What is the declaration that comes out of your mouth in those moments? Are you saying, yes, things are bad? Are you saying, no, Jesus He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He's conquered all. Sin and death have been vanquished. We don't have to live with this. There's more for us. We can stand up and be great and be counted. And we can look forward to a future that's filled with good things. Who do you say Jesus is? What is coming out of your mouth when you're in those situations where people are misrepresenting Jesus or misrepresenting the victory? of who he is. You know, over the years, I have had many people talk to me about Jesus. And sometimes, uh, often in the church, you know, not, not, not amongst you guys, because you're fantastic, but in, in churches, I've heard from time to time representations of Jesus that, that are okay, but they're so much less than who Jesus really is. And I feel like my hope is with the sermon that Jesus will pick your eyes up to see who he really is. So some of the kind of like false ideas of Jesus that we often 
think about. I'm going to go through a couple of those. Is that okay with you? But one of the first ones that I think comes to mind is the storybook Jesus. You know that, that Jesus. It's you know, not in our Sunday school or children's church, but, but perhaps in other places you've, you know, you've heard about the Jesus who just arrives on the scene and kind of uh, he doesn't wave a magic wand, but he waves his hand and everything that was wrong is suddenly right. And it's all nice and good and no one's frowning and no one's angry and everyone's sweet and kind all the time. Do you know that storybook, Jesus? The problem with that is when you get out into real life, it just doesn't work that way. They're problems. And Jesus doesn't just wave his hand and all your problems go away. Have you noticed? And so sometimes then, that storybook Jesus that you grew up with maybe, you know, leaves you feeling like, that Jesus I learned about, he doesn't really work. You know, not everything goes just right when I want it to. And so then what you say is, well, what I've heard people say is particularly, well, maybe Jesus isn't real. Maybe he's just a story. Maybe it's just a myth. You know, he's not really relevant for my everyday life. Funny enough, I I, uh, specifically spoke to a man recently. I had an interview with him, and I was asking him about... Uh, uh, Christian things, but he was an atheist, and I, I began to ask him about his upbringing, and he, he mentioned to me that he had grown up in a Christian home, and he said, you know, I learned about Jesus, and, uh, you know, but then when I got out into the real world, things were so tough, and Jesus, Jesus didn't make it all okay. I still had to fight battles. And so I realized everything they told me about Jesus was wrong. So I just said, no, I don't want to serve that Jesus. And I walked away from him. Because sometimes when you fed a Jesus or you introduced to a Jesus that's less than what he really is, you get inoculated to the real thing. And you, then you don't know how to trust the real Jesus because you don't understand that, that Jesus is not really about making your life comfortable. Jesus is about raising, conquering sons and daughters. So God, Jesus isn't necessarily going to take all your difficulties away, but he's going to come into your difficulty. He's going to come into your life and he's going to rise up strong and courageous in that area and he's going to teach you how to win. He's going to give you skills, ability, thoughts, ways of looking at life that are just better than you had without him. And sometimes we need those difficult things to develop some kind of muscle some kind of strength because we are meant to be carriers of God's kingdom, releases of his glory wherever we go. The, the ones who, who know how to declare his truth, the ones who know how to stand in difficult situations where everyone else is falling, the, the ones who, need, who are meant to strengthen our weak brothers, who are meant to hold up the oppressed, who are meant to walk with the lonely. So the storybook Jesus, he just doesn't exist. A man by the name of Matt Chandler, who's quite famous, he said this, more often than not, we want Jesus to have fairy wings and spread fairy dust and shine like a precious little star, dispensing nothing but good times on everyone, like some kind of hybrid of Tinkerbell and Aladdin's genie. But the God of this Bible, 
He's not like that. He's a pillar of fire and he's a column of smoke. He's the powerful creator of the universe. He's the one with one voice he can spew out universes. He's the fire of his nostrils, if that happens, can just um, um, annihilate mountains and obstacles. He's the glorious, strong and mighty ones and he's raising up sons and daughters in the same image. And therefore, difficulties Gosh, he eats them for breakfast. And when you stand in those situations, the, the purpose is that we would, we should would let that column of fire, that, that pillar of smoke rise up within us and say, problem, move. Marriage, be healed. Heart, change. See like it's meant to be. Love like you meant to love. Be different. John 16, Jesus said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. It's one of those promises you don't put up on your wall. But in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. In other words, have courage. I have overcome the world. In other words, no matter what you face, Jesus has already been there and he's already won and he's teaching you how to grab that victory that is already in him and win in that situation also. Find the wisdom, find the love, find the courage to walk through it and take others through it too. As I've said before, there are no such things as impossible situations, only situations that don't have Jesus in them. Surrendering to Jesus is about what he's done for us that enables him to do the rest through us. So that's one um, false Jesus, so to speak, that we can think of as storybook Jesus. But how about this one? How about the slot machine Jesus? Do you know what a slot machine is? It's, I hope you don't, but in case, <laughs> I'll just explain it to you. It's, you know, you go into casinos and you, you put your money in, the, in those machines with all the, the cherries and the pictures there, and you pull that lever, and they all spin, and if they line up, all three the same, money comes out. Someone in the front is asking, how do you know, Carol? Well, you know what? I wasn't always saved, I'll just say. <laughs> And you, and you know, it's, so, so we, people, people in church often get this message, just come and give your money, pull that Jesus lever, and ding, 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 brrr, all lines up, and out comes all the money. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, there are churches that seem to say a Jesus like that. Yeah. And you know, maybe you pull that lever, brrr, and it doesn't really work the first time, but keep putting your money in, and keep pulling, something will happen. Have you been in those churches? <laughs> you know, a friend of mine was telling me, um, and God bless this church. You know, I, I feel a bit, I feel a bit co uh, mocking when I'm saying it, but it's just because I do find it a bit amusing. But in this church, how it went is that this visiting prophet arrived and he said at the end of his message, you know what, I just have a feeling that God wants to release a financial blessing on all of you. And so, of course, everyone, I mean, who doesn't want that? You know, you can pray for me for that anytime. I'm not saying that we don't want financial blessing. But so everyone's eyes and ears prick up. And he says, but I feel like you, all you have to do is bring a thousand rand, offering of a thousand rand. Then I will release this blessing over you. You just go away and you 
bring it tomorrow at a set time and I will pray for you. Who wants to do that? Only one person put their hand up. Suddenly it's like, no, I feel like the Lord's saying he will do it for, five, for 500 rand. Who wants it now? So I actually, it actually started at 2,000, then went to 1,000, and finally he got it down to 500, and he had enough people who raised their hand who would have that, and he even said, go and borrow the 500 rand. Yeah. You know, it's just, that's just not the Jesus of the Bible. Because it's not a transaction. It's not like you just come in and give Jesus a quick little blessing and then outflows the, the windows of heaven. You know, it's, it's just the kingdom doesn't work like that. The kingdom is, is Jesus has already done everything that you have access to all life and all godliness. So if I, if I want to use a different analogy, it's like, the kingdom of God is not really a slot machine. It's more like a bubblegum machine. Have you ever seen those little bubblegum machines? And as a child, I don't know, I've, from time to time, got little ones as a present, and it's got this big bulb with all stuffed with bubblegum balls. And then you turn the little lever, and a bubblegum comes out. But then all the other bubblegums just flood into that place. And every time you take one, the bubblegums just take out the place. And, and I, I got this picture of... The, the kingdom of God, just infinite in its resources, just un, unfathomable in all the glory and the blessing that's there. And it's all funneled into your heart. And as you draw down, you turn that little knob and boom, here comes some love. And you give it to that person. And shh, all those um, bubble gums just fill up the place. It's like you can, you can give out as much as you like in the kingdom and more just keeps filling the place because there's an infinite, infinite supply. It's not about me giving to get. It's I give because I already have. All the resources of the kingdom are made available to me through Jesus Christ. That's what the cross did. It opened a way for me to have access into he heaven and for heaven to have access into me. It's a whole different way of looking at it. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 to 8 says this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I want you to see that, that, the, that, that God's already provided us. We can give with a cheerful heart, knowing that all of heaven backs our giving. generosity is the nature of God and we can do it relentlessly because he is relentlessly good giving is its own reward generosity takes us out of the world's financial system into God's there we are secure in his provision and become conduits of his blessing to others so how about the drill sergeant Jesus? Have you all met him? And I think we've all met him from time to time. And you know, he comes with a list of rules and regulations and you have to do all these things. And just when you've done them and you think you've ticked all the boxes, suddenly there are a few more on the bottom of the list. And the list just keeps growing. The more you try to fill it, the more it just keeps growing. One more thing that you have to do to be right with God, to be a good person. 
And it's just a never-ending, tiring list. Many times, people have come to me and I've been talking about Jesus with them and they've said things like, oh, that sounds so amazing. And I've said to them, well, would you like to surrender your life to Jesus? Would you like to give your life to him? Would you like to, to live under this blessing that he's offering you? And they've got a shocked look on their face and they said, oh, I must first go and fix this, fix this, fix this, do this, do this, do this. And then, then, I, then I'll be ready. But I, I don't know if I can get that all done, so I don't know if I can. Let me, let me give you a picture of what this is really like. So I drive a Hyundai i10. It's a little blue bubble of a car that kind of floats across the road, not very fast. It's not your glamorous, I've always dreamed of having this car, but it certainly gets me from A to B and I really like it. But imagine, you're a Hyundai i10, that's a very small car, I can see some ladies are looking at me with blank looks. It's a very small, unpowerful car. That's all you need to know. And imagine you're a little I-10 and you're doing your best. You're, you're on the highway, you know, and uh, if you really try hard, you manage to overtake the, the kind of horse and cart that's stranded on the side of the road and you're feeling like really good about yourself. And then one day someone comes to you and says, but you're supposed to be a Ferrari. Ferraris are the right kind of cars. We all know that's true. <laughs> and then you as the little I-10 said, oh my word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Ferrari. I'm going to be a Ferrari. And so you are heading up the I-1, up that hill, just to the William Nickel off-ramp, and you know, you go, and you like giving it all you've got and you're going and you manage to get 120 and you're working really hard. I'm going to be a Ferrari. I'm going to be a Ferrari. I'm going to be a Ferrari. And you can work till you're blue in your face. You can paint yourself red. You can get your revs up really high. You're never going to roar like a Ferrari because you're an I-10. But what would happen if you decided to listen to the advertising, the Jesus workshop, and you pulled in yourself, your little item into the Jesus workshop, and Jesus says, you know what? Just, for, just because I love you, I'm going to take out your I-10 engine. I'm going to put a Ferrari engine in for free. Guys, when you drive out of there, you are going to be a Ferrari, not because you're trying to be a Ferrari. You understand? You're going to be a Ferrari because you are a Ferrari. Something on the inside has changed. You've, you've handed in, you've traded in your old life and you got a new one. And now you're not trying to be good. You are good. Yeah. Now you have to work against your nature to go slow. You have to work against your nature to do wrong things. You have to try hard to be mean because your natural outworking of who you are wants a different life, wants to love, wants to bless. Now you're a Ferrari. That's what Jesus did. He's not asking you to pull yourself up and make yourself better. He's not the drill sergeant Jesus pointing out all your sins, you bad, bad, bad person. He's saying, come bring your I-10. Bring your little car that can't do anything. Though you've tried, tried to make it into something, bring it to me. I'll give you the Ferrari. I'll make you the Ferrari. 
I'll make you into the thing you've always dreamed of. I'll give you a new nature. I will transform you from the inside out. This man, he's actually an atheist. His name's Chris, Christopher Hitchin. He, well, let me say this. He was an atheist. He's dead now. So I am pretty sure that the minute he, he died and he found himself in God's presence, he was no longer an atheist. Yes. You understand? You know? So while he was alive, he was an atheist. He's no longer an atheist. But he was a particularly militant atheist. And he was part of a group of atheists called the New Atheists who were, tried very hard to convert Christians to atheism. They were evangelistic atheists. Some of them still are. Some of them are still around. But what is so interesting to me is that every single one of them, that group of men, they're all men, actually grew up in religious homes where the re Jesus who was represented was a drill sergeant Jesus. Yeah. And what happened is that they couldn't live up to the, the standard that was being thrown at them the whole time. They were just being told, you're bad, bad, bad the whole time. And people were like trying to, you just be a better person. And they were like, ah, oh, we can't do it. Ah, oh, we just can't, we can't please this Jesus. So we're not going to even believe in him. And the reason they're so angry and they so want Christians not to be Christians because the Jesus that they have been presented with, they hate. They've never seen the real Jesus. And he said this once in one of his writings in a book called God's Not Great. There is no need for us atheists to gather every day or every seven days or on high or an, and auspicious a day or any high and auspicious day to proclaim our rectitude or our rightness or to grovel and wallow in our unworthiness. This is what he thinks the church is. That we come to church and we grovel in our unworthiness because that's the Jesus he learned he doesn't see the life and the joy that the real Jesus brings. Philip Yancey said something that I really love. He says, no one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. Goodness cannot be imposed externally from the top down. It must grow internally from the bottom up. Jesus asks of you only that which he is able to accomplish in you. So who is Jesus really? He told us a lot. Who did he say he was? He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He was very clear. I am the one who brings life to you. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who takes care of you. I am the good shepherd. I am the one that you have been longing for. And then he made a really profound statement. He was speaking to the Jews at one time and they, Abraham came up in the conversation and they asked him, well, how do you know Abraham? And he said this, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That's strange grammar, I know. <laughs> but what he was really saying is that the word that the Jews used for God was Yahweh, which means I am. He was saying, before Abraham was God, I am God. He was making a profound and explicit statement. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the manifestation of the God you worship. He was not timid. He was not shy. He did not pretend. He declared very boldly, I am not just a good man. I am not just a prophet, but I myself 
am God. Therefore, we can't think of him as just a good person because if he was a just good, good person, he was a crazy good person. There was something wrong. There's only, you cannot just think of Jesus as a prophet, a good person, a good teacher, because he left you no option of thinking that. He declared once and for all, I am God. So what, what is the result of all this? There you have a picture of the place where Jesus had this interaction with his disciples. You see that cave there. That is actually, I'm not sure what it's called now, but in those days it was called the Cave of Pan, who was one of the Greek gods. And this cave at the time had a spring that came up out of the back of it and flowed out of the river, massive amounts of water flowed out of the the mouth of the cave and formed one of the sources of the River Jordan. It was a magnificent, beautiful, fertile, green place. But the pla- this place where the spring came up was so deep that the ancients who first discovered it couldn't see the bottom of the, the place where the water came out. And so they assumed that it came from the very depth of the earth. And they assumed, because in their mythology, they had a place where death resided called Hades or hell. And this was the place of the dead. And they believed that there was a river that separated the place of death or Hades and the place of life. And that river was called the River Styx, and they believed that this was the very River Styx coming up from the depth of Hades and coming up to flow out of the river, out of the cave. In other words, they believed that this was the place where the gates of Hades resided. So Jesus walked 30 miles with his disciples to this very place to stand before this representation of all the superstition and all the nonsense and all the wrong thinking of the ancient world and stand before that and say, you know that creeping death thing? He wasn't talking about the place of torment like where you go to hell if you don't serve Jesus. Or He wasn't talking about it. He was talking about that place of death, that, that creeping thing that sours marriages, that brings poverty, that puts you in bondage, that creeps on the earth and just makes good things bad and just eats away at your finances and destroys relationships and makes you feel miserable. He's saying, that death thing that creeps into your world, I, at this very place where everyone feels the greatest power of the enemy. I am going to stand and in this place I am building a church, a group of called out ones who will establish my kingdom and they will destroy that creeping, horrible, nasty, black death thing that is invading your lives and that you feel on a daily basis. They will set captives free. They will take people out of bondage. They will establish my kingdom and they will release my life into the world. Upon this confession that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, as you go out into the world and make this confession, the gates of death, the gates of Hades, the gates of destruction, the gates of bondage, the gates of oppression, the gates of relational breakdown, the gates of poverty are pushed back by the glory of the King of Kings who resides in you because you are the church, the called out ones who stand victorious in his victory. We have the keys of heaven and through those keys, we release the life of God in every place. We stand and say, that does not look like heaven. You may not live here. That looks like heaven. You may be here. 
this is who we are. And on the revelation of who Jesus is, God makes us into that. And in conclusion, knowing and proclaiming Jesus as Messiah and God brings us into a community of called out ones who enforces victory by bringing a new world free from superstition and bondage and filled with his values and truth. We are the church, the called out ones. That's who you are because Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen.